Good morning, Communitas Church. A couple of announcements today. Good to see those of you who are here in the room with us. Nice to be joined by those of you online. Well, that's embarrassing. Okay, so a few announcements. So one, if you want to be on our email list, uh, that's one of the best ways that we can get a hold of you, keep you in the loop on various uh, things happening during the week here and then throughout the week. It's not an email list where we're going to send out a bunch of ads. So go ahead and just email me at mike.gary with two R's, G-A-R-R-Y, at communitaschurch.com. So mike.gary at communitaschurch.com. And then we'll be able to get you the information that will get you connected to various opportunities for service, various opportunities to get connected with communitas groups, um, and then just a couple other sort of just functional things as we progress along. Uh, and then also giving. Uh, there's some questions on that. So you can give in a couple of different ways. One, you can just give on the website. There's a drop-down menu. Just go communitaschurch.com. And there's a drop-down. Hit give. And it will give you the instructions there. Uh, you can bring uh, checks. If you got checks or cash here, you can leave them in the baskets that we have up on the speakers. Um, or then in the back by where we have uh, some of the communion buckets set out. Uh, or you can just send check into 824 Laurel Street uh, right here at Brainerd. And, and uh, 824 Laurel Street, Brainerd, Minnesota. And then we can collect that there. And then speaking of communion, so we'll, we'll do communion here this week. If you're in the building, uh, just remember that we've got the two cups. And the top cup has the juice in it. And then the bottom cup has the, uh, the, the cracker in it or the bread. And so just go ahead and take the take just one kind of assembly of that and bring that back to your seat. And then if you're at home, uh, feel free to grab any sort of liquid and solid. If you, traditionally, this has been a, um, a, a juice and a bread, but we've seen some fairly entertaining and interesting combinations. So uh, go ahead and just have that queued up and ready to go. So I'll pray, and, and then uh, Sean and Emma will, will lead us in some songs. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to take time with your body to be in communion and community with one another. We see that we have been made from unity for unity, from community for community. And so Lord, we pray that we would continue to come together, that we would bless the world around us and show your goodness to the world. You are in the room. Feel free to have a seat if you are at home. You will figure it out. Uh, again, good morning. My name is Mike Gary. I am the pastor here at Communitas Church. And Communitas is a church that exists to love God and to love people and build disciples who walk in grace, who grow in their faith. And we do this by gathering in groups and then uh, exploring the way the Lord has gifted us and then using those gifts to generously serve in and around the Brainerd Lakes area to make more disciples who love God and love people and to get into this rhythm of gathering together, growing together, and going together. And so we've expressed this in, in a couple of different ways already this morning, just taking the time to gather together, to be here both physically in the building at 824 Laurel Street or online. And we're taking the time to say, yeah, at 10 o'clock it's important for me to, to set time aside to be with the Lord, to be with one another, that we would gather, grow, and go together. Uh, so we're going to take some time this morning to, uh, we'll get to the proclamation of the word in a little bit. We're going to take some time for communion. And we do this every week, and kind of like the song that we, we just sang, where we, we remember that he, he takes tragedy and, and turns that to triumph, and agony becomes praise, and there's blessing in that battle, right? And so we've talked about how, uh, and if you've been with us over the last couple of months as we've gone through the Torah, and we, and we remember that that the Lord has taken us out of slavery in Egypt. Why? Because we're really great people? No, because He's really great. Because He is good. And so in communion, we remember this, this, this meal that, that Jesus shared with us and that informs more about who we are and who He is and, and, and how we're to live in light of how He lived. And so we're going to take a few moments just to reflect on who is God the Father and, and what has He done? Who is God the Son and how did Jesus live His life and how does that inform the way that I should live my life and that we should live our lives collectively as a church? And then who is God the Holy Spirit and what is God the Holy Spirit trying to do in and through us? And are there specific names and faces or times and places where He's 
He's calling us to to convey this message of hope. We're going to hope that during this time, as as he's as he's speaking to us, that he might convict us of sin, confirm in us things that we're doing that we would continue to do those things. And if you're listening and you're just kind of kicking around the the tires of the faith, and you're not really sure who this Jesus thing is, and, and what about you know like God and church, and you're trying to sort all of that out. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're listening. And we invite you to ask these same questions of who is God the Father and what has He done? Who is God the Son and how did Jesus live His life and how does that inform who I am and how I'm to live my life? And then who is God the Holy Spirit and what is God the Holy Spirit trying to do in and through me that He might convict me of my sin? confirm in me the things that I'm doing that are good, all that I would better convey this gospel message to the world around us. We hope that in this time there will be specific names and faces or times and places. And so we hope that we'd pay closer attention to that. That we would that we'd be obedient to where the Lord is calling us. That we'd participate in what He's doing here and among us. So we're going to take some time and uh, Sean's going to play some some tunes. And, and take some time to reflect on that. And then as you're ready, come on forward. We have the elements set out to the right and to your left. Other way around. And, uh, and grab those elements. Bring them back to your seat. If you're at home, go ahead and grab those elements. Take this time to ask those same questions. And, and then I'll come back up. I'll read some words from Scripture. And then we'll all participate in the meal together. So, Lord, we thank you for this time to come together. And we pray, Lord, that um, that we'd be obedient to to who you've made us to be. That we'd see you for who you are. Or bring to mind our sin that we would confess it. Bring to mind the things that we're doing that we can continue to do the good things that you've called us to do. And Lord, bring specific names and faces and times and places where you're calling us to convey your gospel your good news, that we would do that, that your kingdom would grow, that we would know and see more clearly who you are and what you've done. So the last time that Jesus and his friends were together, they're, they're eating a meal. And it's this meal that, that they'd used for thousands of years as, as the people of Israel to remember that the Lord who is abounding in mercy, who had great steadfast love toward His people, took them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to life in the Promised Land, who brought them out of death and into life. And, and Jesus extends this invitation and gives us this object lesson that we would continue to remember that, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has brought us from death and into life and that we've invited to take part in what He's doing even here and now. And so it was a pretty simple meal. It was pretty, you know, there was a script to it. They'd followed it for a long time, but as Jesus so often does, He takes that script and kind of flips it and makes it less about a meal that, that about this event that happened a long time ago for, for just one nation, but becomes something that helps all the world think about what will be happening in the future and how they're to live now. So as they're eating, Jesus takes the bread and, and He... After blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And this is a this is a covenantal act that he's doing, right? This is this we've we've seen the way that, that these meals play out and that they you know, uh, especially over the last few weeks and and uh, we see that knowing that that the people that he's in the room with, knowing that they're going to betray him, knowing that they're going to go against everything that this meal stands for, knowing that that they're going to they're all going to leave and abandon him within within a few hours and within a few days, knowing that his body would be broken, that his blood would pour out. He took the cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, "Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." Lord, we thank you for this this covenant. Lord, we pray that it would inform how we live, that it would help us to remember who you are and in light of it, who we are to be.
And we thank you for your grace, and we pray that we can we would extend your mercy to the world around us. Amen. Okay, uh, with these cups, normally we pass the bucket around. Obviously, we're not doing that at this point. There are some blue buckets in the back on your way out. If you want to just toss uh, these cups in there, we will dispose of them for you. And at this time, we've got Miss Julie Orr is going to come up and read our scripture passage. We'll be in Numbers 16 through 18. And Mr. Lonnie Smith is going to tell us all about that here in a little bit, sticking with our pattern of if there's ever whenever there's five Sundays in a month, um, I get to have the opportunity to go back and be with the kids. And so I kind of rotate around. So I'm with the different age groups that way. You know, I'm able to meet the kids and the kids are able to to spend time. We just I think it's super important that as the pastor that kids, you all know that you're important and and that it's worth my time to be with you. I know that sometimes there there can be some misunderstanding with with kids and adults about about how valuable that is. And we just believe here that it's really valuable for our, our leaders to also not just be teaching up here, but to be spending time with the kids. And so you'll as you look uh, among your teachers, most of them have have been elders or, or they're your pastor or, or different things in this regard. And we just we think that you're really important. We're really excited that you're here. It's really fun to, to see you and and to 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 do the faith with you. Um, so while we don't have a kids program per se at this point, we still think it's important that uh, we uphold those rhythms and we give other leaders opportunities to grow in their ability to preach. And so um, Lonnie has done a great job in the past and uh, so we're going to give him the opportunity to, to tell us all about numbers 16 through 18. And so, Julie, whenever you're ready, if you want to read from that passage for us, and uh, we'll go from there. 16, verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself and to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of spirits of all flesh, Shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? Verse 36. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar, to be a reminder to the people of Israel, so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company as the Lord said to him through Moses. Chapter 17, verse 8. 
On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony, to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Chapter 18, verse 1. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give you your priesthood as a gift, and as a, any and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance, in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute through your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. All right. I think uh, the last time I preached, I was um, in a very small room, uh, and it was mainly just me and Nick, so I really hope, Nick, you got something out of that sermon. <laughs> nice to see more smiling face or masks with smiling eyes behind them I suppose and uh, and I like to imagine that there's thousands more online watching me it makes me feel a little bit better <laughs> um, but last time I spoke well I, last time I spoke I was wearing the shirt as well so I think this is my preaching shirt you may see it again um, but last time I spoke it was right after the Israelites had come out of Egypt they just crossed the Red Sea. They knew nothing about this God who was saving them. And they were a very whiny bunch. And God's response at that time was a gentle, fatherly, guiding hand. because They didn't know who they were dealing with yet. He showed them care. He taught them lessons. He coddled them. He needed to. This passage is a little different. Um, it's not showing necessarily... The opposite of that, just another aspect of God. They have been with him for several years now. They have learned of his mercy and provision. And now they start to learn about his holiness and his justice. And it's a little scary sometimes. So, there's a story that I think everyone here is familiar with. It's come out in many forms over the years. Over the last several hundred years, I would guess. About a man, a knight or maybe a peasant, or a young boy, who is gifted or given a sign, a blade of power. In some cases, he draws it out of a stone. In some cases, a woman, a mysterious woman in a lake, gives it to him. There's a lot of different versions of this story. But Arthur always receives this blade of power, this sign that he was to be the king. I think uh, some irreverent comedians from Britain would refer to it as a watery tart lobbing a scimitar at him. 
I won't go any further with that. But you all know the sword and the stone. He pulls it out of the stone. Merlin, the, the, the wizard. But he receives Excalibur. And that is the sign that he is going to be the king. And all the people know it. And all the people accept it. And he ushers in this golden age in Britain, in England, in that island nation. He gathers around him strong knights. But this was, again, a sign to the people and to the tribes that they were to accept and know by this sign that Arthur was their rightful and even divinely appointed ruler. And as stories in real life often go, we begin to see the structure break down. And even some of Arthur's most trusted friends turn on him and betray him. The priesthood of God's people parallels this somewhat, as we will find out. Today we will be looking at chapters 16, 17, and 18. The majority of what I'm speaking on is going to be from 16 and 17. We will see why or how important the divine appointment of Aaron as the high priest of Israel was for the people and how seriously God took it. And hopefully I'll be able to show you why that's important to us today. So we, you saw some of it in the, in the scripture that I had Julie read. Thank you very much, Julie. You did a wonderful job. Uh, it was difficult narrowing this down because there's so much here. We're given three events, basically. Uh, we have, initially, we have Korah's Rebellion. This is the first one that's spoken of. Korah uh, joins with uh, Dathan and Abiram, and briefly they mention uh, also On. He's not mentioned again after that. Nobody really knows why. <laughs> but the four of them, uh, Korah was a Levite. The others were Reubenites, which if you remember correctly, Reuben was the oldest of the 12 tribes. Um, so they would have seen status in themselves there, Dathan and Abram and on. Um, they re they, it says they rise up or they came out against Moses to complain, basically. This is right after Kadesh, where they went, the spies went into Canaan and came back and 10 of the 12 gave fearful reports. God was angry and he said, you didn't do what I said to do. 40 more years, and he sends them back out into the wilderness. And I do want to make a side note on this, not what I'm necessarily preaching on this, but we speak about the wilderness. Mike spoke about the wilderness, and what is the value of the wilderness in our own lives, right? I grew up in what would be considered a desert for the most part. Not quite sand dunes like you might see in some of the movies, but sagebrush, 12 inches of rain annually, it was a pretty dry place. And if you haven't grown up in that, you won't know the beauty of the desert. And what, what you can hear when you're alone. And what God can say to you. And what he can bring you to. Unless you're in the wilderness. It wasn't cruelty that sent him, them back into the wilderness. It was God's wisdom. The people needed it. Anyways. That was a rabbit trail. That wasn't even in my notes. Uh, Korah's Rebellion. This was well organized. It was him and uh, Dathan, Abram, on, and then 250, it says, respected leaders from uh, the, Israel, the Israeli people, uh, the Israelites. So this probably spanned not just the Reubenites and the Levites. It probably spanned many of the other tribes. 250. We're up behind him. And I imagine a gathering like this would have drawn a lot more people. It was well organized by the Levites. It must have been long in the works, because we, we do remember uh, over the last several books, Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers, every once in a while that pops up. Why'd you take us out of Egypt? It's so good there. Oh man, they had melons. Meat. None of the things that they would have been able to eat. I don't get that. Maybe once in a blue moon they might have snuck a melon or a, something like that. But they would have 
In fact, history tells us the Egyptians fed their people, their slaves, with beer. That's probably it. Very thick, bready beer. That's how they kept them docile. That's how they kept them alive. That would have been the best that they probably got. Some bread. But these things they keep complaining about, it doesn't make, it's never made sense to me. Like, have you forgotten so quickly? A couple years. You were in slavery. As Mike says, fingers work to the bone. I complain about Kelly making me work till my fingers are bleeding, but nothing like what they had to do. (laughs) It's like I had to wash a dish, right? Yeah, it's not the same. They did have their fingers worked to the bone. And none of us, at least here in Midwest, Minnesota, likely none of us know what it's like to live a life of slavery. What kind of damage that does to your mind and to your heart. The verbiage here is also important because it says they rose up. Uh, this is the NASB says they rose up. Other translations say they came out against Moses and Aaron. Uh, verbiage is important. This, to us, we see this maybe as, as they assembled themselves and they prepared for a debate. And that's not, that's not what the words are. These are the same words used when armies faced each other. These are pretty angry people, pretty worked up, very aggressive, probably ready to fight. It was a rebellion, not just in name, but in action. Moses' response shows what kind of man he is, and it also shows how aggressive and volatile this situation is. He falls on his face, right? We only ever see that when people are presented with God and his glory or when they're terrified of a ruler or a great power. That's the only time we really see people falling on their face, most of the time, I guess. I think it speaks to how aggressive this mob was. I think he saw them, and he may have seen his possible doom in this moment, and he fell on his face to get their attention. And he entreats the Lord, and he says to these guys, he's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. You guys think you can be priests? Let's do this. Let's burn some incense, all of us. We'll do it. We'll have Aaron do it, the high priest, and you can. the 250 you guys can do it too. We'll see what God does. Korah, remember, was a Levite. The Levites were the helpers of the priests. They broke down the temple, the tabernacle. They packed everything up. They protected. They did all the, the stuff that needed to be done around the priestly spiritual things. It was a pretty exalted position. They were considered pretty important enough that they were given stuff from the other tribes as a way to give them recompense. Korah and his people belittled that gift God had given them already in the Levite placement by demanding more. They demanded to be priests. The Levites had already been given an esteemed and privileged position among the tribes, and now they just wanted more. Korah says, come on, we're a nation of priests, aren't we? We're all holy. Didn't you say that? Didn't God say that we're all holy? Why do you set yourself above us? So Ronald B. Allen, in his commentary, mentions that Korah here is the archetypal heretic. Using one truth, the truth of them being a a nation of priests and holy and set apart among nations, right? That is true. God did say that. He uses that inappropriately here. He uses one truth inappropriately to abolish another truth. He uses this priesthood of all Israel as a means to prop himself up. Again, demonstrating that kingdom of empire that we hear from Mike every once in a while, that kingdom of empire, accomplishment, status, rather than the kingdom of shalom, of peace. To us, Korah's complaint might even sound reasonable. Us Western thinkers, especially Protestants, right? Martin Luther preached the priesthood of all believers, right? That was one of his biggest problems with the Catholic Church. You set up these Catholic priests, 
above everyone else, and only they can do these things. But God said, we are all priests, right? That's what, that makes sense to us. So his verbiage here, this rings a bell for me. Maybe not for you, but it does for me. This is, yeah, yeah, why can't we all do this? But you have to remember, this isn't America we're reading about here. This isn't a democracy. This wasn't a bunch of smart people getting together and building a structure to live by. This was a theocracy. God was in direct control of this people and where they went. And he had a divinely appointed regent that he had proven more than once up to this point. In challenging Moses and Aaron, Korah was challenging God himself. Furthermore, it becomes clear in Moses' response that Aaron and Moses were not at fault here, even though they're being accused of setting themselves up. But rather, this is a power grab by Korah. He doesn't really care about the priesthood of the people. He doesn't want to abolish the priesthood. He doesn't want to make the whole congregation able to do this. He just he, he uses that for himself. He wants to become the high priest. He wants to better his own status. In rebelling against Aaron, they were really rebelling against God. In rejecting Aaron as the high priest, they were rejecting God. We can see that a little bit for ourselves now too, because Aaron was was the high priest of Israel, right? And what did the high priest do? What was his job? His job was mediation between God, a holy, perfect God, and a broken, sinful people that needed him. A God who was so holy he could not be in the presence of sin or evil. They had to take this man, Aaron, and make him holy through, he had to jump through so many hoops to become holy in order to be the mediator, the great high priest between God and his people. Have we heard that before? Anywhere else in Scripture? The great high priest? It's Hebrews, right? Much later, a couple thousand years later, we're, taught, we're told in the book of Hebrews that we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. Jesus had to jump through some hoops, not to become holy, but to provide us a way to get to God. And Dathan and Abiram, it mentions here shortly after, they kind of focus on Korah for a bit, but then Dathan and Abiram, uh, <clears throat> Moses asked them to come. He says, come, on, come see me, let's talk about this. And they don't even come. He's a leader of a couple million people. And he speaks directly to God and he says, come talk to me. And they say, They don't just do that. They send back a rude message, condescending. If you break down what they say to him, it's pretty horrible. At first glance, it doesn't seem that way, but it, it is. Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. It is not enough that you've brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness. But would you also lord it over us too? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us inheritance of fields or vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. They mock Moses using some of his own words. Condescendingly, they accuse him of not bringing them to Canaan. This, again, has been a bubbling, fermenting discontent that has infested the people the last several years. Anytime things didn't go their way, there was a return to complaining about how good Egypt was. And at this point, they actually take it a step further. Dathan and Abiram describe Egypt as the land of milk and honey. Where have we heard that, right? We've heard that. It was how they described Canaan. The land they were going to, the promise that God gave them. And they were using it on Egypt. They were painting the land of slavery as a paradise, all the while painting God's promise of Canaan as a lie. 
They were calling God a liar. And it's a little wonder that Moses at this point, meek Moses, becomes angry. Moses became very angry and complains to the Lord. He's so frustrated with this. At this point, God shows up, basically, and he wants to wipe out the whole group. And I imagine this was dramatic, um, enough to maybe shake Moses out of his anger, because he basically says, stand apart from them. I'm, I'm taking them all. I'm going to kill them all. And Moses kind of, I'm imagining his eyes get big, and Aaron probably is scared too, and they realize what's about to happen. And instead of being selfish, petty, you know, this is a good way to get rid of their problem, right? Let them kill them all. They don't do that. Moses intercedes, begs God not to kill the whole group. And God accepts. Even though they themselves had just been attacked, slandered, possibly almost physically attacked, they still interceded for the people. God does eventually take Korah, Dathan, and Abram and their families. He causes the ground beneath their tents to open up, and they're swallowed. Very visual and different punishment than anything has done been, been done before. On a little side note, it does mention his family, Korah's family is being killed here along with him, but it is interesting to note that his entire family was not wiped out because later in Scripture, I believe in Psalms, it mentions Korah's sons as being the singers in the temple, which is a nice reversal, a nice redemption, that even in rebellion, God still redeems his people. After that happens, the... The 250 people come out uh, and they, they offer incense to God on their censers, and Aaron does too. And God destroys all 250 of them immediately. We must remember that giving incense this was a, to the Lord was a very specific thing. Aaron himself, his two sons earlier, had lost their lives because they had made a mockery of burning incense. They had done it inappropriately to the Lord. And they were of the line of Aaron. They were the Aaronic priesthood. And they paid the price. So all these 250 people coming out and doing it wrong, it makes sense. A harsh, an angry sense, but it makes sense. God had a way set up to approach him, and he had made it clear and these people had said, instead, we want to set up our own way to come to you. And he said, nope. They took those censers. Interesting to know, the, the, the verse talks about them taking the censers even after the 250 men had died. They went among the bodies, and it's actually, if you read it, it's a pretty gruesome description. They go among the bodies, and they pick up these censers, because even though the men had sinned, and done it inappropriately, the censors had been made holy. And he said, go reclaim them. And they make a covering of the altar as a visual reminder to the people. Anytime they'd walk up to that for years to come, they'd see the sun glint off that, and they'd be reminded, we need to approach God on his terms, not ours. They hammered out and do that. Even after these two events, there's a... There's, that, that event, the people, are, they still don't get it. They're complaining, they're whining, they're like, I can't believe you just killed all those guys. They say this to Moses, and he's just, they don't get it. They complain again quite aggressively, and the Lord shows up in a blast of light and decides to begin wiping them out. He says, you know, I gave you a chance. You're done. And once again, he starts a plague. And they start dying. Once again, Aaron and Moses intercede and they say, we can't kill them all. Please don't kill them all. Forgive them. Show your mercy. And Aaron rushes out and takes an incense among the people and burns it in a right, proper way. And God stops. 
They mentioned many people died, but God stops at that point because of his rightful offering. The efficacy of his offering in stopping the plague and the budding of his staff that comes later demonstrate the, pro- the special role that he had as a priest. Whereas the inappropriate, disobedient incense burning of the Korahites brought in God's wrath and anger, Aaron's rightful and obedient incense burning pleased God and averted danger or disaster. So then the third event comes out. This one surprised me because the first two are so dramatic and they're violent. People die. The people still aren't ready. Even after losing a bunch of people to this plague that, that struck them and started killing them instantly. They still don't get it. And so God says, we're going to try something different. And he says, have all the 12 tribes, including Aaron among the, of the Levites, bring their staff to, to you have them carve their names on it, place those staffs in the tent of meeting, and watch. So Aaron has the people do this. They all do this. The leaders of each tribe take their staff up. They carve their name in it. They hand it over to Moses. Moses takes those along with Aaron's and puts it in the tent of meeting, and they all go to bed. The next morning, they come out, and he brings out the staffs, and guess what happened? Nothing to the 11 staffs, but Aaron's had sprouted buds and flowers, and almonds. So the stick that he used to walk was bearing almonds. The other 11 had not sprouted that. Side note is that the almond in ancient Hebrew culture symbolized a couple things, mainly God's faithfulness. Also resurrection and new life. The almond tree was the first one to bud after winter in the spring. And so a lot of people would see that as a new start. And where the death of Korah and Dathan and Abiram hadn't been enough to convince people, this did. The men took back their unsprouted rods and they walked around with them. And every single day, I think, till the day they died, they were a reminder to that man, I am not the high priest. They didn't give errands back to him. They actually took it, put it on God's direction in the temple. Because Aaron didn't need reminding he was the high priest. He already knew that. But the people did. And they saw that. Aaron, figuratively, had been given his sword of power at this moment, and the people saw it. Aaron's high priesthood was finally vindicated to the people. And you will see their response. Their response is terror. We're all going to die. That's what they say. They finally get it. And then into chapter 18, we finally see the systemization of the priesthood because the people were finally ready. They were finally ready to have something that they could support and follow and be protected and provided by. After three supernatural proofs, some of them quite brutal, the people moved from bragging, pride, and grasping to repentance, fear, and weeping. They were ready for a formalized priesthood and its authority that it needed to be the mediation between the people and God. The people are afraid, and God's response is to more firmly establish the priesthood. And using their willing attitudes now, he sets up in place a structure to support and provide for the priesthood so that they can in turn support and provide spiritual provide spiritually for the people. <laughs> the rules that they had here for the priests were, they kind of existed already, but they were finally set in stone, as it were. They were finally systemized. Uh, later on, they talk about the priest's portion, which is some of the basis for the understanding of providing for our ministries and our pastors. One of the reasons why tithing, they talk about the tenth here. Uh, It's been mentioned before, but it was formalized for the people. You are to give a tenth to the Levites, who will then give a portion of it to the priests. And so that tenth paid for the Levites, who were the workers in the church, in the tabernacle, right? They were the ones that kept things going, made sure things were right, protected the people, and protected the priests. And then that went on to pay and feed 
the priests themselves, our ministers, our pastors. So this isn't a sermon on tithing, but it is important. We have people who provide for us spiritually, and we need to provide for them physically. I mentioned it earlier, but the connection here for us is to understand how important it was that the mediator between God and man is respected, is followed, that we approach God in an appropriate way. That high priest had to be there between God and man. God had made that a rule, and he expected it to be followed. Today, we're lucky, because we have Christ as our high priest. It's a lot easier. This is one of the stories, these are some of the stories from the history of our God that is harder for us to understand. It makes us uncomfortable sometimes, maybe even angry, to read the harsher stories like this. And it's okay. It's okay if this makes you wonder or question or feel uncomfortable. It's okay to feel discomfort at God's justice or even his wrath. A wrath or justice that isn't uncomfortable is probably not efficacious. These are pieces of him. Wrath and justice, they are parts of our God but they wonderfully do not exist without his mercy and grace. Praise the Lord. Our incredulity should not be about how difficult it was for them to approach God, nor even necessarily the harsh consequences involved when they didn't do it right. But rather, instead, we should marvel about how unbelievably easy it is to approach him now through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Grace and mercy is given to those who don't deserve it. I once heard somebody say that mercy is for those who earn it, and it made me almost angry hearing that, because mercy is for those who can't earn it and who don't earn it. That's the point of mercy, and that's us. We have that great high priest, we have that mercy, and we don't earn it, but we still get it. Mirrored in Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament, the priesthood of all believers kind of marries to the unique authority given to Christ and his apostles, and then on to the leadership and elders in the church. So what does this mean for us? We need to approach God appropriately. The Levite's call was to ministry and service, not to power or position over the people. This was misunderstanding God's call as being a call to privilege rather than to service. What else do we need to do? We need to facilitate others' atonement. We bring others to Christ. We wash their feet. Figuratively, anyways. We live in service not privilege. So, imagine with me. Let's do a thought experiment. Imagine if Korah had stopped himself. Imagine if Dathan and Abram had second-guessed their stupid mistake. Imagine if they had stopped right away, repented, and done what they were expected and commanded to do. Imagine if they had approached God appropriately. Imagine then... What would have been next for them? What would they do next? Their jobs. They would have done what Levites were commanded to do. They would have served, worked and helped the priests, faithfully packed up the tabernacle, and being the exalted service workers of the tabernacle and its priests. That's what they would have done. We are fortunate. We are fortunate that we have seen the sign already. We have beheld the sword of power, Excalibur, as it were, given to our king. We have God's word to tell us that, and we know that the sign in this case wasn't an instrument of war meant to cut asunder. 
but a crucified and risen Savior who came to make us whole. He didn't come to kill and conquer, but to save and bring peace. Now, as the modern-day Levites, or priests even, we approach God as He intends, through His Son. And then what? What do we do? We do our jobs. We are kind. We feed the hungry. We shelter the poor. We love our neighbors. We put others before ourselves. We protect the weak. We confess our sin. We exalt our God. We encourage the downtrodden. We have patience with the faulty. We forgive the pain givers. We share the gospel. And we bow down before our God. We do our job. Close with me in prayer, please. Lord, help us only and ever to approach you how you intend. Thank you for your mercy in giving us the sign in your Son. Thank, thank you for making it so easy for us. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us. Amen. As you go out this week, just remember, you have a great high priest. His name isn't Aaron anymore. It's Jesus. And it's easy for us to approach God now. And in that, we can rest and we can know that we can do our jobs now. We can bring others to Christ. We can be those priests. Go and have a good week.